Hello and welcome to Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. Each week, you'll join Messiah's Upper Room Bible Study Class led by Pastor Jim Oddy. This week, we are continuing our series over the Ten Commandments, titled Foundational Truth for a Confused World. Enjoy. All right, we're going to continue our uh, conversation this morning about the First Commandment. And uh, you might remember from last week, we got kind of, kind of into it a little bit. But what I did for this week was I went ahead and included the part that we did talk about in terms of where it says from last session. So uh, that's not it in its entirety, but uh, there's enough there for us to sort of get back into it. So as we think in terms of uh, you shall have no other gods before me from last session, number one, many people devote themselves to the God of whatever makes me happy, whatever meets my needs. And we're going to talk about that in more depth uh, today in terms of the way that that shows up in, uh, in our culture. But, you know, when you think about it, you go all the way back in history to the garden. I mean, basically, that was the same issue with Adam and Eve, right? God had just given them that, like, one rule, you know, just that one thing he said for them not to do. And they concluded from that, that would not fully meet their needs. Having access to the whole garden except for the one tree would not fully meet their needs. But if they could have access to the one tree that God said don't eat of, then their needs would be fully met. And, and so again, you can sort of see that that thinking and that uh, mode of operating hasn't, uh, in, in 3,000, 6,000, however many years it's been, uh, we haven't really uh, elevated ourselves much beyond that. Okay? And then the second part is the attraction of rejecting one God in favor of multiple gods is the illusion of being in control. In other words, I get to decide what is right for me, and I can pick and choose. So I'm not ha- we're not happy by nature with what God decides and what God says is best for us, because after all, he only created us, right? We, uh, we know what is, uh, what's best for us. So then number C, in our day, our pluralistic culture worships a spectrum of, of gods and definition of gods. And so um, what I did was I went on uh, the authoritative website called Google, and uh, I, uh, especially Google Images. I just absolutely love Google Images uh, as a way of sort of uh, finding visuals of the different things that people believe. So we talked some about atheism last time that God, the, the whole idea that God doesn't exist and, and the group that is uh, probably the most prominent in, uh, in our society today is the group uh, from Madison, Wisconsin called Freedom From Religion. And every once in a while you hear of them. They're the ones who, who uh, are making big deals about, for example, no Ten Commandments posted on a courthouse lawn, for example. Um, that one's almost, I, I haven't earned much from that anymore. Athens, Texas was kind of the sort of the epicenter of uh, that particular fight. But we also, we also hear that in other settings. And then uh, agnosticism, which says that God does exist, but sort of maybe what, uh, by which name. And so oftentimes you'll hear people who claim to be agnostics 
will sort of acknowledge that there is a higher power out there that runs things, but um, we wouldn't want to call him by any one particular name because we wouldn't want to offend everybody else who might have a different idea or a different name of that God. Now, what those two have in common is that they are rationalistic heavy. And what rationalistic heavy means, at least for me to describe it that way, is that they define God and they want to limit God to what a person's mind can comprehend. And so very often uh, you'll see the perspective that is taken toward the Bible as an example is that the Bible is not seen as absolute truth. The Bible is seen as story, narrative, history, heavy mythology. uh, Very often, um, how many of you have ever taken in school a course that was either titled or the description of it would be the Bible as literature? Are you familiar with that, Bible as literature? Carl, did you have a course like that in school? Yeah. Okay. And so what was the emphasis in terms of teaching the Bible as literature? Well, it was on the literary forms within the Bible. Yes. All right. And so... Well, it wasn't on the content. No, that's right. And so when, in, in some settings, I think there is a well-intended uh, hope that if we teach the Bible or expose people to the Bible then sort of by kind of accident, coincidence, or just sheer osmosis, they'll sort of get the salvation story, and then somehow they'll kind of know who Jesus is, and then we would be happy about that, all right? But the problem with it is, is that when the Bible's not being taught as truth, then what happens is the view of the Bible is, is that it is on the same plane, it's on the same level as all the other wisdom books and religious books that exist in the world. And so there isn't really a, uh, I don't know that there's been, that I can think of stories of that many people coming to faith or salvation through a Bible as literature course. It could be, but I, it just, it doesn't strike me that I've heard that much about that. Yeah, Carl. For what it's worth, that was the first time I ever read the Bible. Oh, that, so that really did influence you in that way then, huh? I think the Holy Spirit moved me there. Oh, uh, good. I, I, didn't, I didn't learn about salvation through it, I guarantee you. Yeah. <laughs> it was much later. But you were exposed to it in, in the sense that there was a, a little window opened for you. I have to admit, it was, it was a... Uh, what would you say? Uh, uh, it, was, it wasn't slant in one way or another. It was literature. Yeah. And that's its own slant, though. I mean, when you think of it that from that perspective, that's its own slant. So anyway, well, we're glad, Carl, that after all these years, it finally took. Thank you, Carl. That's excellent. Yeah, that's, a, that's an excellent uh, story there. All right. The, uh, the third one is called knowns. And these are people who who take the position that they don't want to be identified with any one religion or denomination, but they do espouse a personal relationship with God. And so very often, these are the folks that you will hear say that they are very spiritual, but they want nothing to do with organized religion. 
Anybody ever heard that phrase before, organized religion? So what, what would be, what would qualify in your experience as organized religion? What would qualify? Yeah, if you're here and you're a member of Messiah Lutheran Church, then you're in organized religion. If you've come out of another denomination, then you are still part of organized religion. So what do you think is the objection to organized religion? Or maybe, let's say it maybe a little bit more uh, positively, what would be the attraction of, being, of wanting to be spiritual, but not necessarily uh, a part of an organized religion? What's, what's the attraction, do you think? No yeah. No expectations. Uh, don't like being involved in things, they don't have to. Okay, so there. So if you if you're not part of something in terms of the group, then the the group could have expectations of you. But you could say, well, no, I'm not part of the group. I'm relating. It's me and God, but not me and you. Okay. Yeah, Brian. Uh, seems to me I wonder that if sometimes they don't want to be involved in serving in some capacity and honoring God. Well, it's, I, I don't know if that's true or not. I think that what happens is there is a desire to serve God, but not in the way the organized religion does it. So it's a little bit of where I get to, I get to decide that as opposed to the group and its budget and its bylaws decides, Right. I mean, isn't there a little bit of that sense of that? But it could be. It could be. Yeah, Brian. I think it gives them control. It still gives them a little bit of, to me, a little control. A little control. So like when you joined Messiah Lutheran Church, you gave up all control. Is that what you're saying? (laughs) Gee, I'd like to meet that person. Wow. Uh, Well, you've got a group you're working with versus me individually. Yes. Yes. And you could say that when you're part of a group, and you like, let's say, commit yourself to that group, well, then you're also kind of saying that the norms of that group are the norms that I'm going to follow, even if I don't like them. So the expectations thing and the, the sort of service thing, that it kind of ends up being a little bit of a democratic thing, you know, where, well, we all voted, and since that's what we voted to do, well, then that's what we're going to do. And that sort of, I think, for a lot of people, feels very oppressive, Okay feels very like, oh, they're imposing their values on me, and I don't like that, so I'm going to relate to God individually. Yeah, Phil. Uh, one other view uh, I found of people that are opposed to organized religion yeah. uh, is that they just view that there's too much corruption in various uh, organizations yeah. that, that, that serve God, yeah. that it really turns them off. So, yeah. you know, like you look at all the scandals that have followed the Catholic Church or even other stories that you read in the news of pastors abusing their power of yeah. different denominations uh, for personal gain or otherwise. Yeah. Uh, that's that's really that's that's what turns people off to organized religion saying, well, I don't want to be a part of that. Right. Uh, why would I why would I want to do that? Yeah. Um, I, I have multiple conversations with uh, with a gentleman uh, that I that was the head of uh, one of my programs going through college. Yeah. Uh, he was a tutor for me and everything. Uh, and uh, he he w- grew up in a very re- like organized religious household mm-hmm. and has stepped away from that saying, I, I no longer want to be part of organized religion. I'm spiritual. And so there is a kind of 
judgmentalness there in terms of lumping everybody together because it it happened over here it's only a matter of time it, that it'll happen over here or it's just that it's already happening over here but nobody knows about it because of the organized way we cover it up right and so see there is that but but you know i mean when you do hear about all the stuff going on and we touched on that a little bit last week with with respect to the abuse stuff that's now emerging, the news of that uh, out of uh, Catholicism, you can kind of see where maybe that you might feel that way. You know, it's like, whoa. And so there there is some rationale there. But what does a person lose? And that this would be a good thing for you to think about for people that have given up on organized religion and want to just simply seek God in their own way, what do they lose? And you could speak to that because the, you have something. Yeah. Community. There's community. Yeah. And it's real community. It's not the community of individuals that have rejected something. Right? So there is community. What else? Yeah, Phil. Guidance. Yeah. So you're going to get some guidance. It's not mandated. I mean, there's probably some mandated going on, but there still is the opportunity to have a conversation about it. It's not as um, onerous as I think it's portrayed or projected to be. Okay, anything else? Anything else? Pardon? I guess this goes with community, but the fellowship of the brethren. Yeah. And you've got people that have been right where you're at. Yeah. Pardon my French. But they've been through it, and they know what you're going through, yeah. they can help you. That's right. So the consolation of the saints, so to speak, you know, we're um, been through that and can walk with you through that. It's a little harder to get that when you're more individually based to the extent that you reject everything else. Okay, Glenn and then Gina. I can kind of speak to the being raised one way yeah. and then going another when I met Priscilla, we talked about it. She went. She came to our Pentecostal church. Was she Lutheran? And she was Lutheran. And you were Pentecostal. And I was Pentecostal. Yeah. And still, I haven't given up because to me, that's the one thing that Luther struggled with that yeah. he didn't get is the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And I'll never get that. Well, we think that he got the Holy Spirit, but you know, I know <laughs> what you mean. About yeah. Because it's it's a great thing. Mm-hmm. To, be slain in the spirit. Yeah. To, to speak in tongues and to have a one-on-one -on -one communication with God. Yeah. That's just like being in heaven. But it doesn't reject but the greater, is it, what you're that's saying. Right. Yeah. And Luther himself tried many times to mm -hmm. he sought the Holy Spirit, but he he said he never got it. Yeah. Uh, my theory is that when someone changes denominations, what happens is they just add a hyphen. There you go. There you go. That's my theory. I really, I really believe that. I really do. And, and we all sort of have our DNA, okay? You have the DNA that you probably you grew up with, and probably your parents, like, you know, they just, like, injected you with all that DNA of, of whatever your religion or denom denomination is. But then later in life, you know, I mean, some people change a lot and some people don't. But, but every time you do, you're adding a hyphen. You're not necessarily rejecting everything, even though in the Lutheran sort of um, commitments that you make, you know, when people get confirmed and stuff like that, it, sometimes it'll say things like, do you renounce everything that you had before 
And if you don't, you will die right now. I mean, that's, that's, what, it, that's what it often feels like. And, and I, don't, I don't think that's true. I mean, we may think that that is, but, but I think that when people uh, change denominations, one hand is like this and the other one is like this, right? Okay? And that's kind of how that works. It's, it's very, very difficult to totally... Uh, give up all the thinking that you grew up with. And I would say, why, why put that burden on people that they have to do that? I would say that sometimes you, you, you're taught the faith that the, it, that's new to you, but there's a bit of an evolution that goes on in terms of the time that it takes to finally sort of get it. And sometimes just can't get it. Right. And so you just what do you do? You accommodate it. You you bring it along with you. So that's a good thing. Yeah. Gina. Well, kind of like Phil said, it kind of it gives you kind of direction and guidance. Mm-hmm. Kind of yeah. yeah. And I heard uh, on Chris, I heard Greg Laurie one time on the radio. He goes, you know, there's so many people who are against organized religion. Yeah. And he said, based on the way society seems to be going today away mm-hmm. from organized religion, yeah. he goes, Okay, so what you want or, unorganized chaos? Yeah, because <laughs> that's kind of where we're going. If you don't have organized religion for guidance and direction, and you know, looking to God for mm-hmm. direction. Yeah. So you want a whole bunch of unorganized. Well, and it kind of can turn into that. I mean, I don't know which is worse, groupthink or everybody individually thinking, and we're all uh, heretics. You know, I don't know which one it is. You know, which which one is. But I would say that, again, it's just this is a phenomenon that we're seeing today. Okay, and that's the point that I'm trying to get at here is that and notice, I think, to some degree, it's hard to relate. It's hard for me to relate to someone who's given up on organized religion. I can understand it to some degree. I sort of get that. Right. But I'm not at the place in my own life where I'm willing to say, okay, I'm going to chuck it all because of the abuses or because of the, uh, the, the way that it falls short or, you know, and maybe that's a little bit of my, my personality. Maybe it's just partly governed by that. Bob, you have a thought in your mind or a question on your face. How many Bobs are there? Oh, I should look at the correct Bob. Look how many Bobs there are today. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Because I put this in my phone so I wouldn't forget it, but there's five reasons for going to church, and I'll just very... Oh, five reasons for going to church? Is this on our uh, Messiah website? Oh, LCC. Okay, very good. Yeah. It's the only organization that still deals with issues like salvation, death, judgment, grace, purpose, heaven, and hell. Okay, yeah. It's the only organization. Mm -hmm. It adds value and dignity to human life. Um, it provides a moral and spiritual compass like nothing else does. Yeah. It's where you find compassion. We've already talked about that, mm-hmm. healing and community. And then the other one is, unlike other institutions, it has motivated the most lasting, unselfish, essential, courageous endeavors on earth, things like missions, schools, hospitals, food pantries, rehab centers, and orphanages. So there you go. So. Yeah, there you go. It's hard to achieve that alone. And so kind of that whole idea of, you know, what's that together? We, how's, what's that team thing together? Everyone achieves more or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. John. It seems to me 
there's a lot in maybe more of the younger generation particularly. I don't want to cast a wide net here, but yeah. um, it seems to me a question of relevance. In other words, uh, I look at organized religion and what what is relevant about that that impacts my relationship with God. Yeah. So I'm not against the church. It's right. just like, yeah, you're not relevant to me. Yeah. And sometimes, even within denominations, you get that issue of relevancy. So, for example, in our own Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, there are times when headquarters in St. Louis comes out with some big edict, and we all kind of look at it and we go, what the heck does that have to do with us? So, you know, there's a little bit of that, too, in the sense of we all, I think, are seeking to find a way to have some balance, okay? And maybe that's a way to think about it, that we all need that balance, which means a little bit of togetherness and a little bit of doing your own thing. And, and it kind of rolls that way. And when it feels like it's going to be out of balance, um, for some people say, oh, forget it. I don't want to have anything to do with that. And there's other people that say, oh, my gosh, whatever they say, I'm going to do. Right. And maybe individually and even collectively as congregations, we find ourselves somewhere in between. OK. Yeah. I have a couple friends who reject organized religion because they're simply lazy. They don't want to get up on Sunday morning. Yeah. And, and I'd ask them, they believe in God. Did they say, by the way, that they're lazy? Is that what they said? What? Did they say to you that they're lazy? No. Oh, okay. No, but they don't want to get up. I know they don't want to get up. <laughs> <laughs> but, but they say they believe in God. They believe they're saved. They list themselves as Christian. Yeah. And I asked them, how they, how do you worship? Yeah. And they were totally blank. Yeah, kind of goes they blank. They had no idea that right. you're supposed to worship God if yeah. you believe in him. Yeah. So there's a little bit of that trend, and we've talked about this before. I know we have in our staff here, and you probably have seen this, but maybe didn't think about it that way. And that is the trend in Christendom, which includes Messiah Lutheran, where let's say, and I'm just going to throw out numbers not really knowing, but let's say 20 years ago, you could have a family or a bunch of people who's, if you asked them if they were regular attenders, they would say, oh, yes. And you could look at the attendance role and say, oh, yeah, you guys are here like three, four Sundays a month, and that's like a regular, okay? Flash forward now, those same, uh, those same families, the same approach is if you say, are you a regular attender? They would say, oh, yeah, we're regular attenders. We're there all the time. And you look at the attendance role, and they're here once a month. That's a trend in Christendom. Now, it's probably more true in so-called mainline denominations, but, but that's definitely something that's happening. And yet, it's hard to make the case for the idea that maybe their relationship with God is suffering. What is suffering is their relationship with the body, right? Because obviously, if you're not there, after a while, you nobody knows that you're there. I mean, unless you don't sit in the right pew, then we would know that you're, that you're not there. All right, well, let's keep on going. I can tell that this is generating a lot of conversation, and it could well be because uh, any number of you here, either in your adult children or in your uh, grandchildren, can see some of this. Would it be fair to say it that way? Yes. Yeah. And it's, it's really kind of one of those things where when you grow up in the church and, you know, you've been part of it your whole life, it's really hard to relate. 
it's hard to understand. And it's hard to feel about it that somehow there's something redeemable about it. It's really hard to do that. And we all struggle with that. Okay. Then the last one is you probably have seen these bumper stickers, the coexist ones. Okay. And again, the idea of coexist, it can mean one of two things. It can mean we all have our uh, own religion and why can't we just get along, right? Coexist. Or it can also mean that the viewpoint of the individual is that they're all equal. So all religions have value. All religions are uh, important. Uh, all religions basically believe the same thing. They just have different names for God. And that then eventually we're all going to go to the same place anyway, based on how good we are. Okay. And that's the way that uh, very often uh, that's the view or the belief that's depicted by that. Yeah, Phil. Yeah, I, I wanted to bring up this just clarification. So I think from a society standpoint, mm -hmm. it's the it's latter yeah. uh, that, you, that you mentioned. But the coexist foundation itself. Oh, there's a foundation yes, of that? There is. Okay. That, that actually uses that, that logo and they sell those bumper stickers at their, at their store website. Yeah. Um, they. They're more around, uh, and they they uh, ex uh, they make the statement that uh, let's let's all get along, let's understand one another, yeah. and just exist yeah. and continue on. And yeah. tying that back, I guess, to the first commandment, uh -huh. um, they're kind of putting more of society before God. Yeah. In that. Yeah. Yeah. And so, while you could argue that there is value in all religions. There's only one that's going to get you to heaven. But if you say that to a coexist person, then that person will not want you to exist with them. They will. <laughs> <laughs> their, uh, their tolerance of you will be uh, very, uh, very tested in that moment. But it's a very sincerity based kind of thing. OK, it's the idea that if I'm sincerely, if I'm sincere about my Hindu religion, then who are you as a Christian to say that I'm not going to heaven? Because what do you mean? Are you more sincere than me? So you can see where the basis of the understanding of how you get to heaven or even that you would need to get to heaven, right? Is question. Okay. One more. And then I'm going to, uh, you know, I don't think we're ever going to get, <laughs> that's okay. I can see this is really, this is really pertinent. Yeah. So, okay. I'm with you. Yeah, uh, let's see, uh, who over here? Oh, Madeline, yes. Well, we have to go back just a little bit when we're talking about denominationalism. That's why I call it. Yes, because denominationalism. Raised, a lot of you were raised. Yes. Uh, you were raised in a certain church, and you were taught that it was the only way. Oh, yeah. They may not say it that way, but they sure do. Well, in the Lutheran, they do, so, yeah. <laughs> and I yeah. was raised Southern Baptist. Oh, you were raised as Southern Baptist, married a Lutheran, gotcha. It wasn't going to change. You weren't going to be baptized again. Right. You weren't going to be immersed. That's crazy. Well, actually, it's so, pretty good, but go ahead. Yeah. So yeah. I changed. Yeah. He died. Yeah. I remarried an Episcopalian. A very ecumenical life that you've led. <laughs> yeah, I know. And went to the Episcopalian church. Well, that church changed from Episcopal to Anglican. Yeah. So we all changed over to the Anglican. Sure. And he died. Yeah. I came back to Messiah. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Sound, yeah. So I know. Was that there were Christians yeah. and hypocrites in all those churches? I know. Yeah. And I was just amazed when I realized 
Yeah. I wouldn't mess it up by leaving the Southern Baptist Church. So you have a bunch of hyphens that are, you know, what? It's already with all my names. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it's good. I love it. I love it. Yeah, uh, Bob. Okay, if you can just get them to read, God will take care of whatever he wants. Well, God, you know, God sort of does that. And, and again, I think that that's part of, I think that's part of the responsibility slash privilege that we have to engage in conversation. And I don't mean like just get up and, you know, slam people with Bible verses at all. But by the same token, to be willing to um, show an interest and not be just totally put off by where that person is at. You know, because frankly, some of these people are kids that grew up in this church. So they got all the indoctrinations. They got all the confirmation stuff. They got all of the uh, teaching. They got all of that stuff. Okay? And yet there's been a disconnect somewhere, but not disconnect in the sense that it is a forever disconnect. It's just the need is to somehow re-engage, but re-engage in a way that makes sense to them, as opposed to, oh, here come my parents yelling at me again, you know, kind of thing. And sometimes, frankly, that's a little bit, I think, of the challenge of growing up in a church and then where would you go if you didn't want to be at the, at the church of your parents? Where would you want to do that? And I think there's some of that. Uh, there's some of that. And, and that's fair. You know, that's a fair thing. Yeah. I agree with what you're saying. And I also would like to add to that, that I think a lot of it is they grow up and then all of a sudden they have an opportunity to exercise their independence. Right. So their independence is taking them to all the things that maybe they may not have been able to do when the parents were giving them direction. Right. Or when other people were. So they, they exercise their independence. Yeah. But I really, really do believe that after they reach the age of reason, which today I guess it may be 30. 35. It's when you start paying a mortgage, that's when it is. So, yeah. It is amazing, though, yeah. that, that they come back in many, many cases. Many times they, they do. We, that's we right. We see them coming back. That's right. But there does have to be something, as you say, that is relevant and that they can relate to. Yeah. And they see what's good for them or their family or their children yeah. or they have a major problem. Yeah. And that can be oftentimes. My receptivity goes up as my inability to control things goes down, right? And so sometimes that is, in fact, the, the part that makes me more willing to listen or even to return to the things that I grew up with. Yeah. Yes. You know, just from like a young perspective. Oh, younger. Younger perspective. Yes. Society's changed so much. Society's changed so much. People don't want to get out and meet people anymore. They'd just rather sit here on their phone and say, yeah. hey, I'm going to go do my warrior mission on my phone. Yeah. It's like 20 years ago, it was you were out at the park. Right. Meets the road. Right. Something. Now it's we're on the phone. Sure. I, I did this and everything's yeah. okay. Yeah. It's. It's, I mean, you things have changed. Out in the front yard to play anymore. When I yeah. was a kid, Sunday was going to your friend, yeah. going to church. Now sure. everything is structured, organized. Yeah. Soccer practice in. We got a play date in. We got a birthday party here. We got something over at the park. Then everything is just boom, 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 boom. Well, I'm glad you're here this morning. Okay. <laughs> it's a trip. It's. <laughs> and we'll take that in the positive way. 
It is a trip coming here, let me tell you, and we're not talking about mileage. Okay, so, uh, oh, I'm just dying to get to the bottom of the page here. Okay, okay, but forget it, never mind, throw it, yeah, Carl? And one more, on, on this coexist. Yeah, coexist, okay. What it really brings to mind is comparative religion. Yeah, yeah. And so when you're meeting, when I'm meeting someone who's talking about their other faith. Yeah, yeah. And one simple question. You know for sure if you die tonight, you go to heaven. Yeah. And they can't say yes. No, that's correct. We're the only yeah. one can say yes. Yeah, that's correct. Because the difference that Christianity brings is that it's based on grace. See, that's the one distinction, I think, anyway. It's based on grace, and, and the grace is 100%. As opposed to even being like 99%. If, if, if my salvation and my relationship to God is based on 99% his grace and 1% me, I, I don't have comfort. I don't have assurance. I don't have that sort of guarantee that I need in order to go through life and not be just filled with fear, especially as I get later in life. Okay? I just can't. So the fact that grace is 100%, but that the 100% was uh, was earned by Jesus. And that's the part I think that's very hard for a lot of people to accept today. They just, it feels too, that's like, wait a minute, that mean, you mean there's nothing I can do, right? Okay. And the Bible's answer would be, yeah, there's nothing you can do. You couldn't do it anyway. Now, good works and sincerity and all that stuff is part of the Christian life after you are saved right? In response to your salvation. Yeah. Then we're living our Christian life, but it's not in order to somehow gain entrance into heaven. And I think that's one of the things that I appreciate about my Lutheran DNA. And uh, the more that I study um, other uh, approaches to God, it always comes back to that for me. That it, that in order to accept the Bible's definition of what grace is, that means that I'm taking it on face value of what God said and not adding my own two bits. Because if I add my own two bits, then basically what I'm doing is destroying or corrupting the very definition of grace itself, which means, by the way, what's the definition of grace? Undeserved love. Well, see, that sort of means that no matter what you do, it ain't going to be enough, right? It's so God says, well, don't worry about that. I got that covered. All right. Now, can we get to the bottom of the page? All right. Well, we'll see. We'll see how far into the bottom of the page we get. Okay. So popular views today among millennials, and this just isn't millennials. I would say that there's a fair percentage of baby boomers that also are buying into this as well. But this gives you an idea of the uh, heroes of that and then why it seems to be such a strong belief. So uh, one of the uh, views is called sophisticated scientific deism. And the two guys that are seen as being the, the sort of gurus of that, Albert Einstein is one and Stephen Hawking is the other one. Have you heard of those guys before? Yeah. So Einstein, he believed in the idea that there is a higher power at work he was willing to acknowledge that, but the whole purpose of the higher power was to work in the universe in order to maintain reason. 
So reason is like the main thing. That's the thing that we're looking for. And again, Einstein was a brilliant scientist. You can sort of see that's where he would be coming from. Stephen Hawking um, took that one step further. He believed that a God decreed the fundamental laws of the universe, but then sort of stepped back and let evolution have its way. So evolution is still the way in which things have developed uh, over millions and millions of years, but a God is the one that started it. So somebody asked him, well, then do you believe in God? And he said, no. He said, I don't believe in God. His definition of God is the embodiment of the laws of physics. So the laws of physics is the God. And I don't know maybe how that would be personified, but that's how he stated it. And then once those uh, laws of physics were in place and were, were sort of rolling, then evolution takes over, and then that's how the world came to be. There are many people today, particularly those coming out of higher education, who have been pretty much indoctrinated in that way of thinking. And so, see, when we encounter that, it, it often feels like we're like we're talking two different languages here, doesn't it? Because it's sort of like we're looking at it very often from a God created the heavens and the earth and, you know, certainly is involved, but certainly has sort of left some things to us for us to figure out. And that is, it, that is not what um, uh, these folks are uh, saying. The other view or another view is what's called moralistic therapeutic deism. What's the word in there that sort of jumps off the page for you? therapeutic. The view of God is that he is my exalted therapist. And when you look at the, when you look at the tenets of that, you'll see that a God exists who created the world and watches over it. All right. We sort of could say that. Yes. God wants people to be good and nice to each other like the Bible and other religions teach. Now, what's the undercurrent message? They're all the same. See, they're all the same because every religion teaches some form of good behavior. The difference, again, is what does the good behavior do for you? That would be the difference between Christianity and, uh, and others. A central goal in life is to be happy and feel good about yourself. It's all about you. It certainly is, isn't it? You don't need to have God involved in your life except if you have a problem you can't solve. Yes. Yes. Good people go to heaven when they die. So what's the, what's the big, I mean, what would be the thing that would be the, yeah, that's right. I mean, how do you know, right? And then God makes no demands on people to be holy, righteous, or even good. Because see, that would sort of feel like organized religion, wouldn't it? That, that God sort of expects something from you and then sort of that if you didn't do it, you know, better watch out because God, uh, God is going to get you. Okay. Wh where are the flaws in that? What are the flaws? The shortcomings. What are the shortcomings in this way of thinking? Say the one Stephen Hawking's way of thinking. Yeah, the Stephen Hawking. Nobody is in control. You are at the mercy, the mercy of the universe. Yeah. Yeah, you are. No, I wouldn't like that at all. Yeah, that would be uh, quite unsettling, would it not? Yeah. But I think that the, the thought there is, is that 
because the laws of physics are probably somewhat predictable, then we can predict what would happen and then therefore be more in control. The problem is, is what do you do with the unpredictable? See, what do you do with the random coincidence? What, you know, you're driving down the road in West Texas and there are no trees in West Texas, right? Except for mesquite. You drive down the road and you see, oh, there's a tree up there. I'm going to pull off to there and, and get a little shade and take a nap. And then you pull under that tree and then the wind blows and the tree falls on top of your car. You know, it's just, <laughs> I mean, how do you account for that? And then you go to your insurance company and they say, well, that's an act of God. And well, I don't know what they do with that. What does Stephen Hawking do with that? Wait a minute. God doesn't exist. So yeah, so there is that, right? All right. What else is a flaw in this thinking? Or shortcoming. Yeah. You you have to be good. You have to do all these things. Yes. You, you know, if you you've been good and good, and all of a sudden you have a bad day, does yeah. that mean you're done and you're out? So. <laughs> no, we will call Triton from now on at our church. <laughs> Oh, that's the other thing, you know, when uh, if you're by yourself and you gave up on organized religion, you wouldn't have Triton in your life. So that would be maybe a way to think about that, too. Yeah. And one of the things about this is that it it really has a difficult time relating to suffering. Which at some point in your life, everybody's going to go through. See, and what, what are you left with that's greater than you that you can turn to and find a sense of comfort and a sense of I'm not alone, you wouldn't have that because the way that you have constructed your understanding of God is that it's you and him alone. Well, what happens when God doesn't quite live up to the expectation that you have? What do you do when God allows something to happen in your life that is awful? What do you do? And so I think that when these sort of foundational things in a person's life, in terms of what they believe, when that starts to fall apart, that's the opportunity. Because that's when a person becomes, becomes more receptive. Now, what does that mean? Oh, okay, let's, uh, let's all wait until these things fall apart in that person's life, and then we will rush that person with Bible verses. No, it means right now you establish a relationship. It means right now you work at maintaining contact with that person if it's your kid or if it's your grandkid or whoever it is. Because what you know is, is that when things start to come unraveled in this sort of way of thinking, and life has a way of doing that, when it does, you want to be the person that that person will be open to, uh, to you talking to them and being with them. Does that make sense to say it that way? Yeah. Yes, Bob. Second Bob. These are all founded on the basic principle that all people are basically good. Yeah. Yeah. And basically, we are not good. We start out as sinners and we... I think that one of the premises of this therapeutic viewpoint is that sin is no longer called sin. Yeah, sin is called being inappropriate. <laughs> right? Right? Isn't that how we're sort of, we're, I'm trained to say it that way. I know a lot of teachers are trained to say that way. 
uh, you have made poor choices. <laughs> right? Yeah. Nobody says wicked anymore. <laughs> you're evil. You're being wicked. I mean, again, to some degree, I think that probably sounds a little bit like, oh, we're being judgmental. But, but okay, the Bible doesn't seem to have any trouble with that if you read the Old Testament. But you're right, Bob. I think to some degree we've whitewashed everything so much that people no longer would see the need for a savior to save me from sin because sin is not the problem in the world. Poor choices is. And see, that turns it from an innate part of me, which is when we talk about sin and sinful nature, that's an innate part of me. We change the conversation from that to uh, what I've done behaviorally. And if you limit it to what you've done behaviorally, well, then you could make the case for, uh, you know, the idea that, well, maybe you don't need a savior. You need a better therapist. <laughs> right. With better guidelines and just follow those guidelines and follow the, the Bible is guidelines and follow the guidelines and your life will be better. And then, you know, you'll be making better choices. And I'm kind of making fun of this. Are you hearing me make fun of this? OK, but but I'm, it's sad, too. And partly because I'm in that world. I, I walk in that world as well, not just as a pastor, but also as a counselor. Yeah. So what happened to the theory, though, that we all come into the world, the little babies are without sin, and then we see all these ways they're brought up, mm -hmm. and the pattern and the template for them becomes sinful because of the way they were raised. Yeah. That is a theory, but it's not biblical. Okay. But it happens. It sure does. But the idea, see, again, if we define sin as just what I do consciously and intentionally, then I could make the case for the idea that babies don't come into the world as sinners because they're not conscious and they're not intentional until brain development takes over. OK, till age two, they turn into sinners, I think, you know, <laughs> is kind of that idea. See, I mean, that that would be the dilemma of that. Right. So again, from, from at least from our Lutheran perspective, we would say that no, that the issue of being a sinner is you're born into that condition. You're born with it. And then eventually the symptoms of that condition show up. And that shows up in the form of the sophisticated and creative ways that we go about, you know, sinning, right? Yeah. They went to church and they saw all the good and they didn't make those same choices that they were in in the condition they were born in. Isn't that a wonderful thing? It is a wonderful thing. Yep. And the benefit of the guidance and to some degree, the looking over the shoulder of the other people in the church who are saying, uh, 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 okay. How many of you, uh, experienced this of when you were a kid growing up you went to church with your parents, and then you would have other people in the church attempt to correct your behavior while you were in the pew sitting there with your parents. How many of you ever had that before? <laughs> Still going on, Tom, let me tell you, right? All right? I mean, again, that's sort of the collectiveness of the body. In some cultures... That's the norm. 
In some cultures, it's like everybody in the village is considered your aunt and your uncle. And if you step out of line, they're going to nail you. And the parents say, have at it. And nowadays, if you do that, they're going to call CPS on you, right? And then what am I going to do now? All of a sudden, I got the police at my door because I was uh, telling the neighborhood kid not to throw rocks at something. And so how dare you do that? So again, that's just like... Blows up our minds in terms of the way things have changed. All right. Well, guess what? <laughs> we have a couple minutes left. Um, yeah, some of you might notice that I'm wearing my, uh, my, my tennis shoes today. You know, remember why that is? Because I've been limping around with this uh, foot injury. So I'm, I'm tempted to stop here because it takes me a lot longer now to get across the way to church. And I kind of don't want to, I kind of want to stop here. Would that be okay if we do that? Okay. So, so guess what now? It's now taking four times to get through the, uh, the first commandment and we multiply that times 10 and it'll be after spring break that we finally get done with the, uh, with the 10 commandments. Is that okay? I'm having a blast. Is this, this is really great. And I so love the way that, um, this stuff is engaging us. Okay, let's do that. So uh, let's pray together. Father, thank you for our time together. We are, we are so, uh, uh, some, in, in many ways, we're kind of struck by um, the way that the world is today. And yet I suspect, Lord, if we were to go way back or you were to go way back to the like Old Testament days, you would say, ah, this is nothing new. This is the way people have always been. And, and maybe, that's, maybe that's the real truth. The good news is, is that your truth stands the test of time. Your truth is the word in which you come to us and, and you come to us in such a way that is so relevant. And how we know that is that it just sort of punches us right between the eyes. So, Lord, as we wrestle with this and as we struggle with this, give to us a sense of the hope that it brings, the joy that it brings, and the way in which we can share that with our children and with, uh, with our grandchildren, and with the people that we uh, rub elbows with every day. At the end of the day, Lord, you are the one who's doing the work through your word. Our job is simply to share it and to live it. And as we do that, we look forward to the ways in which hearts are changed, lives are affected, and uh, heaven is, uh, is filled up. So watch over us this week, Lord. Be with us until we're together again. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. If you want to join the discussion, please send us an email with your question or comment to messiahlutheranpodcast at gmail.com and we'll be happy to read it during an upcoming class. You can also go to our website at www.messiahlutheranpodcast.com where you can find links to all the previous episodes and copies of our class notes in case you want to follow along with each episode. You can also find out where to subscribe to the podcast at messiahlutheranpodcast.com slash subscribe for links on how you can find us on iTunes, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or any other podcast catcher of your choice. If you feel like we have given you any value during this podcast, please consider going to our podcast page in iTunes and leaving a rating or a review. 
Not only will that provide us with valuable feedback that we can use to improve the podcast for you, but it will help this podcast to climb the iTunes rankings and help us spread God's message to anyone willing to listen. Once again, thank you so much for listening to this episode. And until next time, may God bless you throughout your week. Bye.